Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am here at the AI conference in San Francisco, and I'm with Paul Tepper, who is the worldwide head of cognitive innovation and the product manager for AI and machine learning at Nuance Communications, the enterprise division of Nuance Communications in particular. And I had the pleasure of meeting Paul at the AI conference in New York just a few months ago, and he was kind enough to volunteer to jump in the hot seat. (laughs) So welcome, Paul. Thank you. Good to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why don't we start by having you introduce yourself to the audience and talk a little bit about your background and how you got into machine learning and AI? Sure. Well, for about a year now, I've worked at Nuance Communications in our enterprise division. I lead a team that has a few functions. One of our main functions is identifying high-value problems for which the company doesn't yet have a solution and working with our large corporate research division to see if we have new forward-looking research that could be sort of productized or prototyped to get in front of customers as a way to kind of move innovation in product, give the product manager and teams across the company new opportunities and things to look at there. I did my PhD at Northwestern. My focus was on computational linguistics, particularly in dialogue. I did a lot of work on nonverbal behavior, gesture in particular, and I also spent a few years prior to Nuance working at a startup, not around anymore, it was called Itibon. And um, okay. we focused on building cloud-based NLP platform that really focused on human-in-the-loop computing and crowdsourcing as a way to build quickly build data sets out to build custom models for NLP. Okay. I don't think I realized the Northwestern connection. Yeah. I, I'm a PhD dropout at Northwestern. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> yeah. Engineering on my side. Were you engineering or? Yeah. Uh, I, I helped found this program called the Technology and Social Behavior Program. Okay. That was a joint degree in computer science and communication studies of all things. But um, that's where we ended up in communication studies doing a lot of work at that time. Okay. Oh, super yeah. interesting. Super yeah. interesting. Do you miss Evanston? I'm more of an East Coast guy. <laughs> I did my undergrad at Rutgers, and I spent okay. a year in Scotland, my master's out there. So I've uh-huh. traveled around quite a bit, but I'm definitely an East Coast guy. Nice. <laughs> nice. So I think the you know folks will get a little bit more about what you're up to now if you maybe spend a few minutes talking about Nuance and yeah. what Nuance is doing. Yeah. So Nuance is a, is a fairly large, complicated company with about 14,000 employees Uh and several different divisions. We have a division that focuses strictly on mobility, mobile products, and automotive products. We have ASR and a lot of cars that people drive to do recognition for cars, the in-car systems. We've got a healthcare division that is some of the top systems for dictation for doctors to do electronic medical records, imaging division. And my division in particular focuses on enterprise communications and We have two main product areas or areas of focus, and that's one, IVR systems or interactive voice response. And that was one of the first commercial applications of speech recognition, systems that you can call into. And instead of doing kind of dial tone menus, you can just say what you want conversationally. And more recently, our focus has been on the digital side. Now they're called chatbots, but we've been calling them virtual assistants for a long time. And actually, there's a lot of overlap in those two technologies. So a lot of the technology that that has been built out for IVR, so to recognize intent, to recognize concepts and do entity extraction inside sentences, and then also the dialogue, build out the dialogue flows, whether they're graphs or trees to build through a dialogue. A lot of that actually works 
similarly in the chat world. Yeah. However, in the IVR world, the utterances tend to be a lot shorter. The chat world people tend to talk a lot longer, so right. different complexities there. So that's an actually an active area of research for us. So how do we use user experience? How do we use UX to get people to talk longer in IVR so that we have more? Because the, the natural language understanding, or NLU as we call it, has really far outpaced what people actually say today in IVR systems. So oh, that's, that's really an interesting, interesting technical challenge for us. Yeah. Yeah, I think of when I think of IVR, I think of call center and I think yes. of the objective on both the person that's interacting with the call center and the company that's that's making it available is to keep the interaction as short as possible. And it sounds like the technology is allowing us to go the opposite yeah. direction. I think that one of the, the technical terms in the industry are things like containment. So keeping the user contained to the IVR as opposed to transferring to a live agent. These live agents are more expensive and not just expense, it's actually hard to staff them. Even if you have all the resources in the world, it's hard to hire up call centers that are yeah. big enough for some companies to even handle a track if they even with unlimited budget. So containment's a big one. Another one's first contact revolution, it's a popular KPI in the industry, so that you can have a, a you don't have to call back, you know, your resolves within that first right. call. So it's not always about short, but it is tends to be about can you build self-service, so being able to let the user call and interact with a system that they can solve their problem automatically. And I'll talk about that in my talk a little bit, about some of the statistics that have come out recently showing that today, especially with like younger generations and consumers, people really don't care whether they're talking to a machine or a human. They just want to get their problem solved. And in some cases, there's even times prefer it. They prefer to talk to a human, you know, sensitive, sorry, prefer to talk to a bot, maybe a sensitive situation, you know, you have to call in and talk about, you know, I need to change a flight because of a death in the family or something. Yeah. In some cases like that, you don't, it's sensitive and you don't actually want to talk to a person, even though people have this feeling that emotional intelligence is so important. Sometimes it's actually, you don't want to get into it. You just want to get your transaction done. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned your talk. What's the title of your talk? I believe, it's a long <laughs> title. I think it's Critical Factors in Conversational Interfaces. Designing conversational interfaces, <laughs> the whole thing memorized. So kind of lessons learned and best practices that you've come across yeah. along the way? Yeah, it'll be a mix of lessons learned and best practices as well as some of the newer things we've discovered and developed new ones. Okay, so walk us through walk us through those. Yeah. Sounds like a, a fascinating I, I, topic. <laughs> putting me on the spot. I don't think they have them all memorized at this point. But um, I <laughs> oh, think practice your talk. Yeah, <laughs> I've got about I think ten at this point that oh, we're gonna wow. be talking about. Yeah, I think I had previously done a version of this talk where I had six and this talk that talk was twenty minutes, so I thought, okay, thirty five minutes, I've gotta beef oh, it up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well just expand upon some of the ones that I briefed briefly went through. Okay. So I kinda go there's like a high level of things like context and personalization. So if you're on a website and you're browsing, let's we, we deal a lot with like banks and insurance and those kind of enterprises, and you're in the auto insurance part of the website and a chat bot pops up and says, can I help you? It actually, you know, that's the typical thing they're gonna say, right, can I help you? Right. But at this point in the website, basic UX, you know, will let you know, you should say, hi, so-and-so, hi, Paul, how can I help you with auto insurance? Those basic principles of UX have not totally been carried over yet into the chatbot world. So it's those kind of things like building those integrations into the systems, to the websites and stuff. A lot of times these chatbots are come from a different platform. So you have to actually build those integrations between the company's website and the chatbot. And those kind of things are like basic UX, but they're yeah. not totally there yet in the chatbot world. It's funny you, you mentioned that. I've been kind of on the DL evangelizing this idea that that a lot of... You know, what we, we've learned so much about user experience design 
in the web world and in mobile and kind of in these other interface technologies yeah. that hasn't really made it into or we haven't formalized to the degree yet or in and around AI and artificially intelligent yeah. user interfaces. And I think the, you know, so I, I call it intelligent design, but that's mm-hmm. kind of an overloaded <laughs> term. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> I haven't come up with the ideal, uh, yeah. the, the ideal replacement for that one, but as certainly, you know, chatbots are the kind of the tip of the spear, so to speak, but even devices like your Nest thermostat or yeah. something like that, there's, I think there are like unique things that you need to take into account to, you know, make sure that users are comfortable with the fact that this thing has some intelligence and also kind of signal to them how to interact with the intelligence. Yeah. It's interesting now, Nuance has been doing what we call VUI design for a long time or voice user interface design. Okay. And these are the people who design many of them backgrounds in linguistics, PhDs in linguistics even, who design the flow of the conversation mm-hmm. and will do, you know, user testing, A-B testing, et cetera, to figure out what the best flows are. And you'll, these people who, the people with this experience are being scooped up now by Google and Amazon. So you look at the people now who, Google has a whole VUI design team now for assistant, as is Amazon, a lot of them former nuanced people, because we've been doing this for a long time in the IVR world. And it turns out like a lot of those, a lot of the basic principles of how a conversation works without a screen transfer over to these, these kind of like IOT devices. And it's different when you have a screen. When you have a screen, we actually know a lot about a lot about web design UX, and that's right. another problem, right? Like, there's this area of overlap between. And now I'm like thinking of a Venn diagram of like conversational user interface design or voice user interface design, web user interface design, and that little spot in the middle of the overlap in the Venn diagram where this weird world of okay, well, the conversational principles aren't going to cover it completely. The web principles aren't going to cover it completely. So you have to kind of merge those two together and figure out things like okay, well. On this part of the website, the person's browsing, you know, mm-hmm. looking at whatever product, the conversational agent needs to know about that stuff. That's one of the things I'll be talking about. Another thing is security, making it easier for people to either authenticate via traditional password or SSO, mm-hmm. as well as Nuance has voice biometric products. So you can usually transfer you over to say, like, my voice is my password, mm-hmm. use a voice print to identify. I don't get the uh, sense that that's very popular. I, I haven't interacted not yet. with no. that. <laughs> no, it's, it's really new, new okay. cutting edge. And it's... It's, it's easier in the mobile devices. So in the mobile devices where we're building virtual assistants there, where the whole interface is spoken, it's a little bit more you know, part of the flow. But we are prototyping systems now where you can actually voice pre-identify for a bank on the web or whatever. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge, it's a huge friction point. Like I think of the, the places yeah. that, that recognize my number and based on my number, you know, associate me with a record. Like the airlines, yep. for example, have done a really good job of coming up to the speed on this in the past few years. But then there are other places where they're like, okay, type or say your password. And I'm like, well, you know, it's like 26 characters and it's in my password save thing or yeah. like, there's no way I'm yeah. either going to type it or say it. Yeah. So, and this is, this is another, it's a big area of AI and machine learning, you know, is these systems are all AI machine learning driven, these voice biometric systems. There's, there's also face print identification now. We do some work there. And we'll start to see other kinds of biometrics too, like behavioral biometrics. I've mm-hmm. heard of this where the way a person interacts with a website, the way they move their mouse, this, the cadence at which they type, etc., that also creates a unique fingerprint of that person. Very, very hard to spoof fingerprint. I think my first experience with that is with Coursera. Like mm-hmm. when you when you're taking a Coursera course, like the Andrew Wang, you know, deep learning course, like you, there's an honor code, and you have to type out this 
honor code thing that says that, you know, this is you. And when you're taking one of their exams, you type this passage out again oh. and it uses that to verify that you're you. Oh, I hadn't seen that. That's and cool. I think if you don't, if it doesn't think you're you, you have to take a picture with your webcam. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. That's really cool. Yeah. So that's, that's another, yeah, it's reducing that friction point. And I'll be spending a while talking about some new techniques that we're using to try to incorporate unsupervised learning into our pipeline. Now, this is kind of a frontier area for AI right now. The majority of it's all supervised sure. at this point, but we're looking at methods where you can take in a set of chat logs or voice conversation transcripts. Mm -hmm. And the big thing with chatbots and with conversational systems is the first layer is the NLU, the intent classification. So what are the in what's the intent of the, uh, the person is saying, such that then you can then you know respond to that intent, whether it's like okay. check my balance or pay a bill. We're working on looking at data sets and extracting those intents automatically through unsupervised learning. Hmm. Can you kind of double click on that and yeah. give a little bit more detail there? Yeah, sure. So unsupervised methods, one of the big things they tend to do is group things together automatically. Clustering. Yeah, clustering or hierarchical clustering or various kinds of methods that bucket things together. So I can't give out all the secret sauce there, but sure. that's part of it. Yeah, that's part of it involves that and part of it involves other steps that can actually identify what the intents are of those clusters automatically. Okay. So as a first pass, this used to have to all be done manually. Our, our, we call them speech scientists and also our data scientists would have to go through the data to figure out what the intents were in a large data set, as well as interviewing subject matter experts at a company. And that was the first pass. But today we've managed to cut down a process that you know, used to take hundreds of hours down to a few days months down to a few days by using this new process that we call intent discovery, whereby you can bucket the data and then automatically identify what the intents are in the data. Then you can use those data, use those that bucketing to automatically label the data. So you get a first pass at like a, a labeled data set and bootstrap a model or train a model off of that, put a model online. Now, the idea here is that the system won't necessarily have the same accuracy as it would with a hand-tuned system. So respecting a hand-tuned system be 85, 90% accurate. One of these bootstrap systems might be like 65, 70% accurate. But then what we do is we put that system online and for all the questions that the VA or the bot, the virtual assistant or the bot doesn't know, we can pass off for one turn to what we call it a hidden agent, a person, a human in the loop. They can then check what the intent was for that and send it back to the system. So the user ends up with this seamless experience of they're just talking to a bot, maybe with like a five second delay when it goes to the person or 10 second delay where it says, hold on, I'm checking with, you know, checking with one of my partners. Then we can use that data to then train in the future and then we won't have to have that, you know, that missing data, that loop in the future. Does that, does that make sense? No, it, it, yeah. makes, it makes a ton yeah. of sense. I'm wondering, does this create a new business model for Nuance where, wherein previously I've, I'd imagine you, you're selling an enterprise, some set of technology Whereas now it's, you know, the technology, but also the service. Like, are you providing the agents yeah, that have, does this? Or are the you providing, a you know, a console that they can have their own virtual agents doing the checking? Yeah. Or both? Both. So, <laughs> yeah, a few years ago, was it about a year, two years ago, we acquired a company called Touch Commerce, which is okay. a live chat platform. They provide a whole suite of live chat. They also, they can provide the agents to you or they can just provide the interface to you. Oh, wow. So we have that. Which is really cool too, because now we can, if a VA doesn't know, if a virtual assistant doesn't know the answer, or a chatbot doesn't know the answer, we can 
we could, if a company wants to partner with us, transfer that way, transfer directly to our live chat. But we also talk, work with lots of companies who have their own live chat platforms. A big one is Salesforce. They provide live chats, a really popular one these days. Transfer to those agents. Uh, we have a console we can provide to allow companies to have this, to, to use their own pool of live agents to do this human-assisted step. Or we can provide the software and the agents. We have all different ways of working on it. It's very you know, we can customize and go all different yeah. ways with that. Not to be too salesy here, but, but you know, we have all different ways of working on it. And yeah, it is, it is, a new, it is kind of a new line of business and a new way of thinking about it. Okay. All right. What else? Oh, targeting. That's another big area. Mm-hmm. So when do you have a chat window actually pop up? You know, I think... Based on the way it's implemented now, always. Always, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, and it seems like... And when I use these systems, I, it just seems there's no rhyme or reason for it. I feel like yeah. a lot of times with these systems, it's just the system clock or something, right? And like if right. you've been on the page longer than 30 seconds, it pops up. Or so, if, you're, if you're visiting the site on your mobile phone, do it you know, immediately. Obscure <laughs> everything else on the uh, page. Yeah. <laughs> See, there's the UX issues. It's only if you worked out. Yeah. We, we have a targeting engine that's constantly undergoing new prototypes and stuff, but that's aimed at like, when are you interact with the user? How do you interact with the user? In what way? What language do you use? What even down to like the colors and stuff on the interface. And that targeting engine is based on all kinds of things like how long has the user been on the page is certainly one of them. But what, what have they put in their shopping cart? Like have they put something in their shopping cart and walked away. So there's all these different inputs to the system that you can use to then tune when you're going to pop up that, you know, pop up that chatbot to ask if they want to talk to an agent or talk to oh, Nina is the name of our just talk to Nina okay. talk to a chat bot and assuming it's machine learning driving that ultimate target decision how transferable are the models from one customer one custom, one website to another like are you training these models on a customer by customer basis or is there you know you have industry models or is there a generic yes, model right. that outperforms just show the chat bot all the time? Yeah, so there are, we do have generic generic setups, you know, for various verticals, but when it comes down to it, a lot of this is, this is a very difficult subject right now these days for us because a lot of our customers really feel very strong that they don't want the data shared, they don't even want the models shared, you know, so mm-hmm. it's a new, it's, it's a, it's... Even for when their chat bot pops up on their website? Anything. <laughs> yeah, the, it's it's a it's a very tricky area that I think that our company, I think a lot of companies today are having to deal with, which is like how do you both be a competitive AI machine learning company while at the same time protecting the data of your customers in mm-hmm. a way that they're com- comfortable and they can com- that, like dealing with all the kind of compliance issues too. Because a lot of our customers are banks, so it may even be that legally you can't, you know, unless there's actually specific consent. For example, we deal with. A government agency in Australia, and they—I was just reading one of their one of their privacy policy documents the other day, and I was saying, like, unless you have explicit consent from a user, like a pilot says, like, I consent to use this, or you've signed some checkbox or something, they can't use that data for anything else. Tuning a model, even, you know. So this is really, I think, we talk about all you know all the exciting stuff in AI today, and all the amazing things that are happening. When it comes down to it, for a lot of businesses, these are the real problems today. It's not. How do I scale a deep learning model or how do I productionize this system and get it working on, you know, going from one cluster to a thousand computers or whatever? It's like the legal problems. How do you actually deal with the data in a way that's safe for the company and for the users? You know, it's 
really like a huge stumbling block. Great. Yeah, I was just reading, I forget what, I think it was, I think it was an article in someone's newsletter or something like that that was talking about how there's this huge gray area around copyright and data sets. And, you know, basically everyone who's using, for the most part, these public data sets is kind of flying under the radar. But there's this, you know, potential exposure where there's no established, you know, precedent around, you know, the the extent to which copyright on a data set flows into the model, for example. And so potentially someone using this copyright data set to train the model could be creating a model that's, you know, has potentially owned or has some copyright liability with someone else. So that's an example of this kind of meta concern mm-hmm. that, yeah. that your customers are thinking about. Do you have any perspectives on the, you know, the rise of the consumer voice interface devices, the virtual assistants, your Alexas and your Google assistants and things like that? Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of that stuff, it has to do with their APIs, you know, with those kind of systems. We right now, we have our, our chatbot integrates with like Alexa and it integrates with Google Home, but there's certain things we can do and certain things we can't do. So one thing we would really like to do, a lot of our customers, like I said, are banks, right? And with banks, this voice biometrics has become very popular recently. But one thing we can't do right now is voice biometrics over Google and Alexa because they only send you text. So at this point, they don't actually send you the audio signal. They do all the ASR for you, speech recognition, and the TTS for you, the text-to-speech. And they have no way of sending out those signals. So I think this is something that we've had huge strides in terms of the openness and the compatibility of these platforms with Alexa and now with Google Home. But for years, this was a big problem with Siri, right? With Apple, like they had no ability to do third-party integrations. You couldn't say to Siri, like, you know, play a song on Spotify for me. So this is this is definitely like a big topic for Nuance right now. This idea of, we call it cognitive arbitration, where you have agents that sit, like kind of Uber agents that sit in the middle of all these different IoT systems right. and coordinate those for you and bring that data together, bring those systems together and those APIs together to talk to these different systems. I know this is also a vision of Amazon's as well, where mm-hmm. being able to sit and like have their agent that has goes out and has all these different skills that they come to. So this is kind of, this is a newer topic for, for Nuance that we're working on more recently is how you can use intelligence and reasoning and other kinds of machine learning to build agents that can sit in between all these different IoT devices and talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And do you see, is there a role or any emergence of like standards or standardized approaches? Like for example, you know, there's tons of work that's been done around federated identity in the web. And now this is you're introducing a whole other layer around biometrics. Does any of that kind of work transfer here, do you think? Or are we just like too early? No, no, to... no, I think it will. I think that the, this is, we're in very early days here. So it's sure. basically like, I don't know, like the very beginning of the internet when these kind of standards yeah. were, being, were being built out. You know, like right. what's HTML and how does it work? That's where we are today with AI. So these issues, the thing like you brought up with the data, that, those kind of issues haven't been solved yet. Like how do you, there's no, you know, Apache license for data at this point, you know, mm-hmm. whereas that stuff, you know, to seasoned software engineers and product managers now, it's just kind of like second language. They know what the, what the licenses mean. They know what, what yeah. they can reuse, which code can be leveraged, which can't, what you have to declare, what you don't, et cetera. But that stuff doesn't exist for data, but it's an interesting point. You know, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, I think that that'll come about. And similarly with 
with these standards around interoperability. I think that's something that we have teams at Nuance who are working on and trying to kind of reach out to different partners because this is not a problem that's going to be solved by any particular company. Just in the same way that like, you know, JSON standards can't be solved by Google. You know, yeah. they can't just make a really great JSON parser and everybody take it and put it in their browsers or put it in their systems. It has to be, you know, standards-based and community-based. So I think we are we are thinking about these kind of interoperability standards at this point. Very early days, though. Mm-hmm. Great. Any other things that you covered in your talk that you want to share with us? Yeah, I covered most of it. <laughs> oh, <did you? laughs> yeah. okay. There's a couple of things like in the front matter of the, conver- the of talk that I was talking about, which is that in this world of chatbots and virtual assistants, it's surprising by how much of it isn't AI and isn't machine learning. And we really, there's a lot of companies that will have like, you know, like a dot AI in their name, but everything is still like based on regular expressions and rules and that sort of stuff. So, or people. Or people, yeah, or people big time. And that's, that's not always necessarily a bad thing, but it's, mm-hmm. it's often part of the company's strategy in terms of, you know, having everything in the beginning be run by humans right. as a way to gather data and then over time learn from it. But that's something we try to help educate our customers about is how much of this actually is AI and machine learning and how much of it isn't. Today, most of the AI and machine learning for us happens on the language understanding side of things. Yeah. So when the input comes in, being able to categorize it using statistical models, NLP models, in order to route it to the right response, you know, to get, get the right response to a question. We can also do things like entity extraction, extract a concept. So if you're saying something like, you know, I'd like to order a pizza or I'd like to order a large pizza, a large vegetarian pizza with pepper, well, <laughs> with peppers and onions. Um, almost a pepperoni. Being able to identify both that the intent was to order a large pizza, but the toppings and the size and that sort of stuff, fill out those categories, that kind of technology. Now, some of that stuff is standard, but there's still quite a few, you know, different platforms out there for doing chatbots that don't offer that kind of you know, that level of machine learning NLP. But beyond I've that... played with that stuff in the past, like API.ai. Mm-hmm. It's a very manual and tedious yeah. process to build out those those entity trees. Exactly, yeah. And so you're, it sounds like what you're describing is a way to learn some of that from the actual yeah. data itself. Yeah, exactly. So that, the when it comes to, when it comes to our intent discovery and bootstrapping process, we're learning um, the intents automatically and building out kind of you could call it an ontology, the, the, the group of in, the intents and then the various concepts that are associated with those intents. But yeah, we try to just like encourage people to be discerning and try to figure these things out when you're looking at a platform. Today, I think the next frontier is going to be on the other side, though. There really isn't any system on the market today, including ours, that can automatically learn how to answer the questions, especially if they're complicated back and forth dialogues. So if it, if it requires like a back and forth conversation, those tend to be, you know, built out manually either as an enterprise, in the enterprise, you know, by talking to subject matter experts or when people are doing it themselves by figuring it out themselves that way. That I think is, def- is the next frontier for this technology is learning how to answer questions and dialogue. There's a lot of... Now, there are tons of people who say they can do that. Yeah, there are a lot of... There's, <laughs> what they tend to do, though, is you have to feed the system question-answer pairs. Mm-hmm. And then it can learn to map new questions to those answers. Mm, right? Got it. Got so this it. is question answering, but it's not dialogue. Right. That's if something exists sort of in an FAQ, can you 
identify if the question takes a different format that will, that will actually map to this question that's in the FAQ. That type of a format. I mean, it could, might not be an FAQ. It might be like a list of a thousand questions and answer pairs or whatever. But I mean, cutting edge research today. I don't know if you're familiar with like the Stanford Squad data set that Q and A data. Yeah, that Q and A data set where it's trying to answer questions off Wikipedia articles. And this is like right. pretty cutting edge research at this point. Yeah. There's research teams across the world competing in this kind of thing, but even that still is focused on you know the answer is in the article. You know, yeah. we're talking the kind of stuff Nuance is working on today. Oh, that is one thing I, I forgot to mention. We've got a product a project we're working on now called Nina Knowledge, okay. where you can basically push a button to ingest a website or a set of documents and then start doing question answering on it. Yeah, and it it does leverage some of the technology that's being used to answer like those to work with that squad data set, but it also leverages technology from information retrieval, search. So it combines a few different areas, machine learning as well as NLP and question answering so that, and I like to think of this as low-hanging fruit, really, because these kinds of questions that you actually have just a one-shot answer to, those are the candidates for automation today. The things that we still really are still very early days in the research in is how do you actually learn a back-and-forth conversation that requires multiple questions and feedback going through a conversation with somebody from data. Mm -hmm. I think that's the next frontier. Hmm. In the case of this, of Nina Knowledge, Mm -hmm. To what degree is it you're doing like transfer learning off of a model trained on squad and applying that model to the website that's being ingested? Or is this process including like training up a new model on that website? Yeah, the process is, yeah, strictly we start from scratch, you know, on each one each time. We haven't, we haven't gotten transfer learning or anything like that into production yet today. But those are certainly areas of research that we're working on is, so one area where I don't know if I'd. I don't know if you would call it transfer learning or not, but you can certainly do things like learn word vectors, you know, from one data set and apply them to another. That's, that is certainly like a form of transfer learning. Sure. Most people think about transfer learning, I think today they're thinking, okay, I built this big multi-layer neural network and I'm right. extracting a piece of it and then you know, using it on another data set. Yeah. I think it's still early days for that sort of stuff, but certainly when it comes to word vectors or other kinds of vectors, paragraph vectors, document vectors, etc., mm-hmm. that stuff can be transferred and it can be very helpful and improving the quality of a model pretty mm-hmm. quickly. Where are we in terms of, you know, we've talked a lot about identifying the intent mm-hmm. of, you know, an utterance or something that's typed into a chatbot, but where are we in terms of, you know, more, you know, maybe more realistic kind of dialogues that have multiple intents or mm-hmm. hidden intents yeah. or, you know, things like that. You know, and this is maybe a slightly different direction for the question, but, you know, for a while we've talked about, the IVR systems being able to identify the emotion and, you know, change Mm -hmm. or escalate the the way the call is handled based on the emotion. You know, when I'm frustrated, I try to make sure the IVR knows I'm frustrated and it never makes a difference. (laughs) I really love this this, this question, particularly the emotion part of it. I really love that question because we've been working on it a lot lately of what do you do with text at sentiment, right? So that's basically tends right. to be in the sentiment area. Although there are some models now that classify things into like the five base emotions, like what is like anger, happiness, frustration, sadness. It's like yeah. these, you know, old models of this. There are some models that claim to be able to do that. I don't know how accurate they are. But sentiment, that's at least one that, you know, we're pretty accurate. We can get pretty accurate on that for the most part, at least global sentiment of a sentence. That isn't always sufficient because there can often be two sentiments in a sentence. You know, yeah. I love this, but I hate this. What right. do you do there? So... Getting off on a tangent, but the reason I think this is really fascinating is because the real question is okay, great, so what do you do with it? What do you do when you know someone's pissed off? What do you do when you know someone's frustrated? 
And that's a really hard question <laughs> because it tends to be what a company, what a customer wants to do is figure out a way. They, it's about containment, right? So how do we handle this without escalating to a person? Because escalating to a person is expensive. But when you have a frustrated person, the only thing we know how to do today, or the only thing we tend to do today is escalate to a person. So I think what it's going to come down to is understanding that there, these aren't black and white things, that there's, just like we have you know, confidence scores and probabilistic models that give you a gradient of how sort of, of uh, confidence and say, you know, a right answer, there's going to be a gradient in terms of like sentiment. So if a person is saying something like, you know, I'm having trouble with this, then you might be able to say, oh, okay, I'm sorry you're having trouble with this. I really, you know, wish you were doing a better job there. But, you know, can I offer you this, you know, tool, this troubleshooting step, you know, or this right. troubleshooting dialogue. Whereas if a person's really upset, then yeah, you probably just want to say, maybe you want to offer them at least to say, would you like me to have a technical support person contact you directly? You can just like hold on and we'll call you. Or do you want to proceed with our, you know, troubleshooting online? Yeah. So I think although we still aren't there 100% with recognizing these things, the, the, the question of like, what do you do with it once you have recognized it <laughs> might be even a harder problem to deal with, you right. know? Because great, we can get like, we end up with 100%, 99% accuracy of knowing when some, how angry someone is. But how do you, what do you, right. how does that help you? What do but you your do customer with? does not want to escalate all of those to, you know, their most senior rep or a manager yeah, or something exactly. like that. Yeah, exactly. Right. So how do you handle <laughs> it? What do you do with it for an enterprise? Like how do you actually right. use that data in a way that's interesting? And again, this doesn't actually come down to an AI problem. It comes down to like a user experience problem or a design yeah. problem. Yeah, I wonder if there's like, you know, companies all over of glommed on to net promoter score as a mm -hmm. way to measure customer satisfaction. Yeah. But I wonder if there's like a net IVR anger score or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you guys should do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah this, it, our customers ask about this stuff a lot. So it's really, it's, it's on t the, the front of people's minds. But yeah. you do to the, when you go down that dialogue, when you go down that path, it's, you know, okay, so then what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Paul, thank you so much sure. for taking the time to sit down with me. I'm looking forward to catching pieces of your talk and how, you know, there are ways that folks can kind of find out about your research or connect to you on Twitter or anything like that. Yep. My Twitter handler, handle is my name with the first initials switch. So, okay. Tall Pepper, T-A-U-L <laughs> Pepper on Twitter. That's probably the best way to get at me these days. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, good luck with your talk tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and, of course, for your ongoing feedback and support. For more information on Paul and any of the other topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 52. For the rest of this series, head over to twimlai.com slash AISF2017. And please, please, please send us any questions or comments that you may have for us or our guests via Twitter, at twimlai or at Sam Charrington, or leave a comment on the show notes page. There are a ton of great conferences coming up through the end of the year to stay up to date on which events we'll be attending and hopefully to meet us there check out our new events page at twimlai.com slash events, T-W-I-M-L-A-I dot com slash events. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.